1: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. Jenny Jackson's blockbuster debut novel, Pineapple Street, takes us into the lives of three women at very different stages in their work, love, and family lives. When Sasha, a working-class girl from Rhode Island, marries into the old-money Stockton family, she understands quickly that her husband's love for her is not necessarily transferable to the rest of the Stockton clan. Gifted by her in-laws, at least temporarily, a house of extraordinary value in Brooklyn Heights on the fashionable Pineapple Street, Sasha is trying her best to understand her place in a family unlike her own in nearly every way. Her sisters-in-law, Darley, the eldest, and Georgina, the youngest of the Stocktons, see Sasha as somewhat of an interloper, entirely uninterested in joining the family properly and with a certain self-interest that is deeply off-putting. Each sibling is struggling in her own way. Darley has cut herself free from a promised inheritance in order to bet on true love and her own family-making, But when things go terribly wrong for her husband's career and her children aren't quite the rays of sunshine that she might've hoped, she wonders about her sacrifices. Georgina, young and uncertain about much in her life other than her deep attraction to a work colleague, a man who appears to have figured out the secret to a meaningful life, is working out that in fact all secrets, Don't Tell the Whole Story. A novel that harkens back to the family manor stories of the 19th century, updated with the concerns of an American system of wealth inequality that threatens to tear down the structures of the nation, Pineapple Street asks difficult questions about the possibility of living a good life when the very nature of that life has been preordained by money. As with all good novels, appearances are deceiving, and Jenny Jackson sets up some fantastic and plot-shaking surprises for each of the characters as they stumble and write themselves on the way to something like Living Properly. The wandering perspective of the novel's eye teaches us that context is everything and that families need to be porous in order to endure. The guilty, immersive pleasure that is Pineapple Street feels less and less guilty the more its substantive core rises to the surface. This is Jenny's first novel. Her day job is as vice president and executive editor at Knopf. She is a graduate of Williams College and the Columbia Publishing Course, and she lives with her family in Brooklyn Heights. Welcome to the show, Jenny.
0: Chris, that was such a wonderful introduction. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you for being here. I know you have been just about everywhere with this novel. You're just returning from the London Book Fair. Um, How has it been um, feeling the early success of your first novel?
0: It's been unbelievable and surreal. And I think that I've seen this from the outside enough times to know that it doesn't always go like this. And I'm Mm -hmm. just like enjoying every single moment of it when I'm not just frantically racing from one place (laughs) to another.
1: (laughs) Well, it seems like you're enjoying it, and I'm so glad that you are, because as you say, it is not the everyday story of a debut novel. I'm very interested in how Pineapple Street came into existence. Was there a particular germ that first gave you um, a mental picture of the Stockton family?
0: You know, there were, I think, as with many novels, there were a few germs that all kind of whirled around and mixed in the soil together and then, you know, became a plant. But um, (laughs) the the first germ was, you know, um, during the real heart of the pandemic, Brooklyn was a pretty scary place to be with two small children. And so Hmm. we... um, we packed up our stuff and we thought maybe we were just going to leave for a couple weeks. And instead, we left for six months and we went and stayed with first my husband's parents in Connecticut and then my parents in Massachusetts. And it was terrible and wonderful and weird. And, mm. you know, we both come from amazing kind, warm families. But I just kept feeling over and over again, that weirdness when you're living with a family that's not your own. Uh, And it got me thinking a lot about just how um, peculiar the in-law relationship is and how you can love people so much, but your family of origin is just always going to be kind of a, a shell that's impossible to crack.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I was
0: thinking a lot about that relationship um, when I read this article in the New York Times um, by Zoe Beery called The Rich Kids Who Want to Tear Down Capitalism. And it was about these socially minded millennial heirs who feel that the, the great fortunes that they are set to inherit are at conflict with their values. So mm-hmm. then I was thinking, God, what would it be like to be rich right now when being rich feels frankly immoral, you know, when, when income inequality has become so excruciating. And so those two ideas sort of clicked into place, a, a family with money who lives on Pineapple Street, an in-law trying to make a place for herself among these strangers and a great fortune that comes to feel perhaps out of step with American culture right now.
1: Hmm. That's a beautiful description of the book. And certainly I, there's nothing quite like that feeling of being in someone's house that's not your house. It might be your family's house and trying to navigate rules that are both spoken and unspoken. And, and boy, does Sasha sort of step into a world where there are a lot of unspoken rules of behavior. I mean, I think that's one of the the pleasures of thinking about kind of, old wealth and and property, is this sense that everyone should know these rules that are unstated. But I, I, I wonder if it was fun to kind of set the trap for Sasha to say, oh, here's this beautiful house for you, and then to lay a series of impossible to meet standards and rules and have her walk into that.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's funny, right? Because when you stay at somebody else's house, and it should just be said, I absolutely am the worst house guest. I really don't um, enjoy really being a house guest. And I don't really enjoy <laughs> having house guests. I think that just for me, there's like a social dread that comes with all of it. But even, you know, in a, in a best case scenario where it's your friends or where it's somebody whose family is really like yours, there are always those faux pas that you commit. You know, you put that mug in the microwave and it turns out that, oh, actually that mug is not microwave safe and you just ruined their stuff. (laughs) Or, you know, you take a shower and you accidentally get water everywhere. You know, there are just, there are so many things all the time when you're in someone else's house that you're doing wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's a funny thing because I think that when you mix in social class, there all of a sudden comes this sort of layer of wrongness and judgment that comes Mm. with making Mm -hmm. mistakes that when you get something wrong there's like in some ways a shame attached to it like where you are from is not as good as where we're from that goes beyond just accidentally soaking someone's bath mat you know
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that I, i mean the shame is is the clearest maybe in that moment where sasha realizes that she's um unbeknownst to her wearing a approximately the same outfit is, is it the cook or uh, I, I the their housekeepers, yeah,
0: their housekeeper. So their housekeeper. Wearing, and you know, this is, I'm just going to confess, this is a ripped from real life story. One of my very best friends at work had this happen to her that she was uh, visiting her husband's family on Cape Cod. They were just boyfriend girlfriend at the time and she wore a white blouse and navy pants to their family party and people kept mistaking her for the caterer and it's just <laughs> this it's so deeply cringe because i think we've all been in that situation where we have accidentally asked uh, a stranger for help at a store only to have them say, I don't work here. Or, you mm, know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we've all been on both sides of that, right? I've certainly asked someone for help at a store wrongly and vice versa. And there's this feeling of like mortification that goes with it, which is like bizarre. Like w- why would you be so mortified that you just asked someone where the jackets are and they don't work there. And yet there is, you know, inherently because what we're identifying there is a power structure. Oh, you work for me right now. Oh no, I don't Mm -hmm. work for you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's what Sasha is unbeknownst to her stepping into. She's stepping into, oh, you work for me. Oh, you work for me. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately nobody in this scene realizes they've done the wrong thing. So there's like no shame at all as they continue just to treat her like, the help you know
1: and she goes at one point and brings someone a drink or whatever it is <laughs> they because she's just you know she's trying her best and doesn't know quite how to deal with the on one level shame but also not wanting to embarrass the the guests but, yes it makes for uh, it makes for goodly comedy, but also a sense of those class and power dynamics that you're interested in, and it's it's why I think so. You have this incredible compliment given to you by the novelist uh, Chris Bajalian, who says that uh, Pineapple Street is the novel Jane Austen would have written if Jane Austen lived in Brooklyn Heights in the 21st century. And while I won't uh, ask you to compare yourself to yeah, Austen, really. <laughs> I I am curious that you know i do think you're interested in the thing that austin was interested in which is these sort of these very subtle and textured class differentials and how they play out in the everyday interactions of family friends intimates and and others
0: well i will confess that i um that in, for my senior seminar at Williams College, I took the Jane Austen seminar and it made such an enormous impression on me. And then of course there have been so many wonderful sort of retellings of Pride and Prejudice in different ways, whether it's, you know, Bridget Jones's Diary, which is honestly one of my like seminal texts or um, <laughs> or Curtis Sittenfeld's wonderful Eligible of a few years ago. Oh, and Oh yeah, I think that
1: was a great one.
0: I love that book. I think that um, astute, readers might enjoy taking a look at some of the scenes. I really don't want to spoil too much, but um, some of the Curtis scenes specifically mm. the, um, the Russian oligarch uh, chic party. And then again, the um, the party where they run into each other, because those scenes are actually an homage to, to Mr. Darcy uh, and, and, and Elizabeth Bennett in those, in those scenes. So Absolutely. Jane Austen. I love her. I'm obsessed with her. And I think that the mother character could also sort of uh, be seen as a little bit of a nod to Mrs. Bennett, right? Because Tilda in the opening scene is looking at the dating apps and (laughs) And Curtis (laughs) observes like, oh my gosh, that's just like my mother who would want to set me up with somebody who has an adjoining property on Martha's Vineyard. You know, (laughs) a lot of these sort of old school matching, matchmaking traditions seem to apply in in this upper echelon of New York society in a way that feels pretty out of step with the rest of America.
1: Well, now she's going to be Mrs. Bennett forever for me. Um, absolutely. And and now the, the Curtis scenes take on a different valiance. Now that you've given me that image, I, I, I definitely see it. Su- Susie Yang said that Pineapple, Pineapple Street was the Edith Wharton novel of our time, but you're not cruel enough to your characters. I think to be, to be Edith Wharton, she would take them down to the seventh layer of hell. Um, and, you ultimately, I think, have a great deal of empathy for for pretty much everybody in the novel. do you yeah. do you feel in your sense in your sense of yourself as a writer a kind of uh, a desire to be kind ultimately to each of the characters?
0: Yes, and it's so funny that you're that you've pointed this out because I know there have um you know been some reviews that said, you know that ultimately i I do pull punches out of you know for the sake of kindness to my characters. And it's just frankly true that I, um, when I think about the books that I truly, truly love, you know, I'm, I, as an editor, I get to work with Catherine Heine, who is um, the author of Single Carefree Mellow and um, Early Morning Riser and Standard Deviation. And she just loves her character so deeply, and it really adds a layer of warmth and well-being to the reading experience. And I think when I was writing this book, you know, the, the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, I just felt like everyone was in such a dark, sad Terrible place, and I mm-hmm. wanted to mm-hmm. write this book to a make myself happy, but also make readers happy. And so I wanted to spend time with people who were ultimately good, but trying to be better. I thought mm-hmm. a lot about um, Nick Hornby's novel, How to Be Good. You know, where it's decent people wrestling with with what to make of themselves. You know, in this life. And then, you know, I really wanted to to just have a sense of joy as you were reading it and for me writing about people who i liked and whose company i enjoyed w- was the way forward
1: well you can definitely feel it in your in your characters there's a sense of as you say a, a struggle to to do better and be better, um, but also you can feel your 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 genuine affection for them. I, I spoke in an earlier interview with Lydia Millet about her most recent novel, *Dinosaur*, which is a novel about a super-rich protagonist who is, in a in some ways, similar to to your characters, trying to do better, be better, live better. And I talked to her about the difficulties of that when you carry the burden of extraordinary extraordinary privilege. And she said that you need to have stories about every kind of person attempting to bring goodness into the world because it's the variety and seeing all types of people in that process, that very human process that makes literature powerful.
0: You know, it's interesting. I think that in some ways I have been such a fan of Succession, of White Lotus. I mm-hmm. mean, I think there, uh, I watched triangle of sadness, the menu. I think that it is very interesting in just, I mean, I think rich people are having a moment and it's interesting to watch and to read and to see this experience. I also think though, that we're living in just this incredibly wild Time where, um, you know, as the boomers pass, they are going to be passing down more wealth than, you know, any generation has ever before inherited. You know, millennials are set to be the, the greatest inheritors of fortunes. And so we're minting these, you know, multi, multi, multi millionaires in their 20s. And I actually think that that is wrong. I think it's, you know, sort of a, a real failing on the part of our tax system and our society that we've created a world where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I know I'm not, you know, unique in feeling this way. Um, and so I wanted to tackle that, but I didn't think that it was um, especially fresh or new for me to write about that from, from the perspective of, you know, um, a millennial who is, you know, struggling making twenty thousand dollars a year, and I also didn't think it would feel especially fresh or new for me to write about it from the perspective of, you know, a billionaire villain. I thought the most interesting way for me to go at it would be for me to write about to write about it from the point of view of privileged. People who have been blind to their own privilege, because you know, I think this is like possibly a quote from like the promotional movie uh, for the the promotion for the movie of A Talented Mr. Ripley. But there's some quote that says like, "We all think that we are good people," and I mean, <laughs> like, I really am like hearkening back to a piece of ad copy as like a you know kind of a piece of wisdom here. But I think that that has always really stuck with me that when you're dealing with Anybody who's not a sociopath, they probably think that they are a good person, but there are all sorts of ways in which we are blinded to our own humanity. And, you know, maybe that can be because we are sad or we're lonely or we're broken or we're struggling or, you know, there there are many reasons. Um, But I felt like it was interesting to see how privilege could create those blinders and not allow for people to see, you know, their where they're coming from and that they're not actually contributing towards our society in a positive way.
1: Yeah, and you have you you have this ventriloquized precisely with Curtis saying um, to Georgina, kind of early in the novel, "People like me shouldn't exist." And he's yes. this scion of an insanely wealthy family, I, I believe, much more wealthy than the Stockton family. Yes, and and you're thinking about these children of of extreme wealth and the possibility that we will have many more of them. And that question of what to do about their existence starts to weigh on Georgina. And can you talk a little bit about how she handles it? And I mean, I don't know how much you want to give away, but also thinking through, you know, what does it mean to kind of change that nature of your existence as a certain kind of person um, who's inherited all this wealth?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I loved her. um, I loved creating a sort of tricky dichotomy for her where she is essentially nothing but a drain, you know, on her family that she has uh, an expensive apartment and she's gone to these expensive schools and she spends her nights and weekends going out to expensive dinners and drinking fancy cocktails and hanging out with the other rich kids that you know she grew up with and then nursing her hangovers with delivery. And yet during the week she has a job working at a not for profit that um, works on developing healthcare in third world countries. And so she is able, she writes a newsletter for them. And so she feels like See, look, I'm doing good, <laughs> but then through getting to know some of the people who she works with, namely Brady, um, you know her her colleague who she becomes terribly infatuated with, she realizes that what she's experienced of the world is actually just sort of like this thin piece of Disneyland that we offer to the rich to make them feel like they have traveled, you know. She's gone to see um, the Great Wall of China with her high school class and she's gone to Paris and she's gone to London and, you know, maybe she's gone to St. Bart's. But just because you've been to those places does not mean you've seen the world at all. And she realizes that Brady, who has, you know, lived in Haiti and done work in Afghanistan and Uganda and Pakistan, and he has had a much, um, a much deeper relationship with the way other humans actually live on this planet. And it's sort of a rude awakening for her. That's rude awakening phase one. (laughs) And then she has another couple of rude awakening phases over the course of this novel. I didn't want to punish her. That wasn't like, that Mm -hmm. was definitely Mm -hmm. not my intent. I'm not interested in giving these people what they deserve, but I was interested in like watching her journey as she bit by bit, the scales kind of fell from her eyes. I think that, you know, someone like that is only going to truly change in small doses because you know because of their exposure and influence you know and so then she has this interaction with Curtis which feels like a huge slap in the face when he basically calls her out on being a trust fund baby whose family has gotten rich off being rich and she you know lives in an apartment that her grandparents essentially bought her through trusts and then she ends up going down this long pathway of moral reckoning and then having to learn the rude truth that just because you have a trust fund doesn't mean you actually have money. And that was like a really juicy thing for me to research because I personally do not have a trust fund. I did not, you know, (laughs) grow up. I I do not expect to inherit great wealth and I hope my parents live forever. But um, I I had to do a lot of homework when it came to how inheritances work. And I just learned so much about the way that these trusts are safeguarded to prevent anyone from actually frittering them away. These trusts are really designed to be, you know, there are generation skipping trusts and there are trusts where you have to, where you're doled out certain bits of the interest, but you never touch the principal. And this is the way that um, the elite have created dynastic wealth
1: in mm. our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- I think that's such an important part of Georgina's story is the the revelation of what that wealth actually practically means and Mm -hmm. how it means something to this kind of this dynasty um, rather than to her individually Mm -hmm. and but you also you don't treat. Uh, Brady with with kid gloves either. And he seems on the outside as someone who, just as the basic element to being human, attempts to be good. And it's not charity. It's not an add-on or a vestigial thing. But at the same time, he's a scoundrel in the 19th century sense of that uh, uh, that yes. term. And I and I wondered what it was like to play with that dynamic. On the one hand, he is for Georgina the ultimate role model of how not to have goodness be an add-on to your regular life and then at the same time to be a kind of deeply flawed person.
0: Yeah, I mean in in sort of two different ways he comes to be not maybe as perfect as he originally seems. Um, One way is that, you know, when she talks to him about, you know, don't you just do this job? Don't you work in international um, healthcare to be a good person? And he's like, "Um, no, like, uh, this is just kind of what I was always going to do. You know, my parents worked for, I think, Oxfam International and worked for it. and And you realize that he's kind of grown up living this exact lifestyle, that his parents were international aid workers. And so he became one and he likes to travel and he gets bored easily. So for him, it's almost Mm -hmm. like the goodness of it is a byproduct of living an interesting life. And, Hmm. you know, I mean, I don't mean to dismiss anybody who does this kind of work because for sure, smart people can find careers doing much more lucrative things than working, you know, to help bring Care to developing countries, so I'm not taking away from that. But I also think it's a little bit of a reveal in the book when you discover that he's not really doing it purely to be good. He's doing it because <laughs> because we never really escape our families of origin. And then mm. you know, a I different don't
1: kind of give... inheritance.
0: A different kind of inheritance. And then you know, I don't want to give too much away, but he is um, he's romantically taking advantage of somebody who is his junior at work, who seems obsessed with him and he's not straight with her about their romantic interactions and what they mean to him. And I think the reader is probably going to have a lot of questions about how good or bad Brady really is at the end of the day. And, you know, my editor, Pamela, who I love and who's amazing, um, we went back and forth so many times on how clear I needed to be about whether Brady was a good person or a bad person. Hmm. And I could just never really commit one way or another, because even though I love all my characters, I think, I think I'm think i unwilling to let Brady off the hook, but I'm also unwilling to really condemn him because I think that when people fall in love, they do stupid, selfish things, or they do things that don't feel selfish at the time. And Anyway, love, love makes people crazy. We've seen this. So I was unwilling to really come down too hard either way on Brady.
1: Yeah. And and I think holding him in the moral ambiguity that you do, um, given what happens to him, is, is very important in, in a way that's more important to Georgina than just having him be this kind of ideal and, and more powerful for her down the road in what she chooses to do. I want to go back for a second to the 19th century um, since Pineapple Street begins as so many great 19th century novels did with the question of real estate. The incredible uh, wealth of the Stockton family who've made their fortune in real estate have decided to let their son Cord and his new wife Sasha live in their giant house on Pineapple Street. And the house Becomes a site for understanding how privilege has shaped Cord's life and how Sasha is an outsider in the family in a house that's kind of designed to look like a sailing vessel, even though it's <laughs> not near the ocean. Why did you want the house to be uh, the center of gravity in the novel?
0: You know, um, I think that you know we we did talk earlier about how when you're in someone's home in some ways you feel like you are in their heads, you know? When you're mm-hmm. surrounded by a family's detritus, it feels like you're absorbing their history. There's also just, I think, a lot of power in the fact that Sasha is going into Cord's home rather than him coming into hers. But then I'll also say that I, I live here in Brooklyn Heights. I was living on Pineapple Street when I wrote the novel. I was living in a um, you know, a fourth floor apartment with two small children that felt more than a little bit crowded almost all the time. And so there was definitely some amount of fantasy and wish fulfillment, you know, like Mm -hmm. every single person during the pandemic was trying to renovate their house or trying to move. Like it made us all feel crazy about the places where we live. And I was feeling crazy about the place where I lived. And I was walking around the neighborhood and there is this humongous, beautiful building at the end of Pineapple Street. And through the window, I could see a grand piano and a chandelier. And it just looked like a palace to me. I just thought, who gets to live there? Who gets to go on conference calls that are not in their bathroom? Who gets to (laughs) have all of this luxurious space? And I think like many New Yorkers, I became Real estate obsessed. And I spent so much time on the app Street Easy. It's still on my phone. I just, I this blog, Brownstoner. Um, I spent a lot of time looking over different um, curbed Brooklyn real estate blogs. And it, it is, I think real estate is a A fixation for obviously a gazillion people. And that's why we have all those shows about, you know, buying houses or renovating houses or whatever. It's, you know, perennially fascinating to people. But in New York, especially because the way that real estate is priced is just so absolutely astronomical and insane that it becomes like, um, a seat of great power for this family to be a real estate family. The fact that they own, you know, the Stockton's own huge swaths of not only Brooklyn and Brooklyn Heights, but also, you know, the Dumbo waterfront and part of the Upper East Side. And the fact that they own so much of a city where the, you know, so many people are all the time, like just constantly hunting for a place to rent that's big enough to, you know, store a bicycle just felt like, um, Oh, oh, the the perfect way for them to really kind of uh, reign over the city.
1: Hmm. And I, I fear that the sad truth is that whoever lived in that glorious house that you, you longed after probably like jetted off somewhere far away during COVID <laughs> and left it empty. You could have you could have moved in as a squatter.
0: <laughs> probably. I mean, there is this weird thing that um I find myself doing when I pass incredibly beautiful. Um, apartment buildings in New York, I find myself stopping to look up the stoop and to count the doorbells. Cause it'll, cause you know, sometimes you'll see something and you'll be like, oh my God, I bet 10 families live there. And then you see one doorbell and you're like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs>
1: I'm going to have to start doing that (laughs) next time I'm in the city. One of the great things about Pineapple Street is the shifting perspectives of the novel, moving from Sasha, the interloper, to the Stockton daughters, Darlie and Georgina, working to reveal how Context and perception construct what we think of as the truths of our lives. Sasha sees the sisters as greedy daughters of generational wealth, working to make her the outcast of the family. But when we move with the narrative eye to inhabit the the sisters, we see Sasha's alienation as aloofness and distance and self-interest. Can you describe the work you did with these three protagonists and the moving narrative eye that helps us inhabit each of their viewpoints?
0: Yeah. I feel like I... um... I've studied the work of Jay Courtney Sullivan, who is one of my writers. She wrote Main and Commencement and Friends and Strangers. And she has always written from um, a rotating point of view. And there is this wonderful, wonderful thing when you're writing in close third person where um, you get this sort of band of narration that lies between what the character understands about themselves and what you, the author, would like to tell the reader about that character. Mm -hmm. And when you are describing sort of the same interactions from multiple points of view and you show how they understand those moments differently, that's sort of where a lot of the drama can lie in, in in a book like this. And you know, I felt like I was writing about people who at the end of the day were genuinely seeking connection no matter they weren't always working really hard on connecting, but they genuinely did want to have harmony in their family. And so the main place where the action was going to take place was in misunderstanding. And so when you're writing from close third-person rotating point of view, which I have now started calling the lazy Susan of narration, where <laughs> you're kind of going like this narrator, that narrator, this narrator, that narrator. So when you're I'm going to call
1: around, it that in class now. It's
0: good, right? <laughs> So when you're sort of spinning the lazy Susan and you're seeing from different perspectives, it gives you just this wonderful way to exploit those misunderstandings and amplify them.
1: Mm, Yeah. Well, I'm stealing that. So (laughs) I hope you didn't uh, copyright it already. Um, Part of the initial excitement around the release of Pineapple Street had to do with your day job as an editor for some of the most important and beloved writers working today. Your roster includes Gabriel Zevin, Emily St. John Mandel, and you just mentioned J. Courtney Sullivan, and many other authors who credit you for shepherding their novels to greater visibility and commercial success. I've been wondering whether it was a burden or an asset to have worked with so many talented people. Did it stir your creative energies or set an a impossible bar that was intimidating?
0: Well, I think that if I tried to write like any of my writers, or if I thought even consciously about a reader going back to back from one of their books to one of mine, I just never, ever, ever would have been able to Mm -hmm. even try. Um, But I just keep feeling like I have, you know, sort of accidentally taken a 20 year MFA program and tricked everyone by getting them to pay me for it, you know, because I just (laughs) studied like at the knees of these writers who me away, you know? And so it's been a huge, huge, huge asset. I will say one of the very weird things about writing for me, and I bet this is, um, I'm curious to know actually, I'd love to talk to more writers about how they experience this. I think one of the things that makes me a good editor but is weird or harder for me as a writer is that I think I'm a little bit of um, a mimic. I think that I mm. really do soak up the language of whoever I am reading or whoever I'm talking to. Like, you know, if I spend a lot of time around my family, I almost start having a Southern accent. And, you know, it's like, just, I really do pick up the language from other people. And i feel like as an editor, that's been really beneficial because when I'm deep in somebody's novel working with them, I can say, oh, you know what? I think here he would more do this, or he would more say that, or, you know, I'm able to really like kind of, um, pick up their voice and help them kind of carry it along through any sticky parts. Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: when it comes to writing my own book, I've been so, you know, I had to find my own voice, you know, I was not, it, of course, not interested in trying to copy anybody or, you know, um, sound like anybody else. So once I found my own voice, I felt excited about it and like eager to, you know, keep writing away. But because of my day job, I sort of had to take breaks in writing to edit some other projects. So it would be really hard for me if I was editing somebody who had a really different voice you know like if I was editing a wilderness thriller and then Mm, I had to like mm -hmm. go back to pineapple street I would just sort of feel like I needed to you know mouthwash my brain and do a reset (laughs) so that I wasn't like you know all of a sudden somebody's like popping around a corner on orange street with a rifle over their shoulder or something you know it's like just trying to like get the other voice out of my head and get back into my own voice that's been really interesting for me because I wish I could say it was like a super easy toggle, but it's not it's um, it's like a much weirder, harder thing that, you know, sounds pretentious to talk about, but it's just like, you know, finding your voice and sustaining your voice is a little bit of a, a magic act.
1: Well, David Foster Wallace used to say that he couldn't read anything when he was when he was in a writing process because he would start adopting the mannerisms and voice of what he was writing. So Oh, um, that
0: makes me feel better. That makes me feel less like a, you know, I don't know, a spongy hack. So I love that. <laughs>
1: n- not at all. I think I think you're doing it right. Although I'm I'm sadly sad that I have to miss the wilderness adventure subplot to the to <laughs> That'll be Street. in the sequel. Oh, okay, good.
0: Orange Street with the <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Long guns, yeah.
1: So before I let you go, I I wanted to ask, and I realize your life is overflowing with books, but I wonder if you have a couple that you'd be willing to share as recommendations.
0: Yes. So um, just on sale on Tuesday is Catherine Heine's absolutely hilarious Games and Rituals. And it is a story collection mainly about women and heartbreak you know the title story games and rituals is for a woman who um has a ritual with her boyfriend he won't move in with her into her apartment but every night they brush their teeth together on the phone and so it's really <laughs> about sort of ex wives and ex girlfriends and children and lovers and it's hilarious and it uh, has so- the
1: t- toothbrush as the cover right
0: yes exactly okay
1: yeah i've seen it everywhere
0: Oh, Catherine Heine is just the funniest, most sparkly writer. Um, Then another novel that I think everyone in the UK is so aware of and has been sort of um, more of a word of mouth cult sensation in the US is um, this book called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. And it's, you know, what I like to call a chocolate pretzel novel because it's both sweet and salty, you know. It's um, about this woman who um, is maybe becoming estranged from her husband and behaving pretty abominably, but you love her so much. And every time she says something wicked or awful, you just like cry laughing, even though half the time you just want to slap her and tell her to get her act together. Um, But Meg (laughs) Mason is just a really special writer. And it was the first time I read her and I'm just a fan for life now.
1: Uh, those sound amazing, and I I had heard of Games and Rituals, but I haven't heard of Sorrow and Bliss, so I'm, I'm really excited for both of those, but I can't recommend enough that my listeners run out and get a copy of Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson. You will not be disappointed. And it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you about all the intricacies of your novel, Jenny.
0: Thank you, Chris. It was really, really fun for me.
1: Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Jenny Jackson for her generosity in coming on the show to talk about her fabulous debut novel, Pineapple Street. You can find links to purchase Pineapple Street and all Jenny's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in touch. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.